Welcome everyone to a Baseball America podcast. I'm John Manuel along with Ted Cahill remotely from Texas and along with Michael and Anna remotely from across the table from me with a phone that is quieter than mine. Uh, I want to thank everybody for joining us. Our podcast and all of our college coverage, of course, is sponsored by Louisville Slugger. Uh, visit them on Instagram or on Twitter at Slugger Nation. And remember that there's power in numbers. Uh, thanks to Louisville Slugger again for sponsoring us this year on the podcast. And guys, uh, you know, Teddy, you're down in the uh, Lone Star State. Uh, you started off, I believe, uh, with some American Athletic Conference action, but you also have seen some Southeastern Conference action. That's where we wanted to start in regards to this week's college podcast, because we still don't get any separation in the SEC, but we had last week we had LSU as the top-ranked team in the league. Uh, they lose a series. Now we have Auburn as a top-ranked team in the league. And I don't think any of us had that as a possibility coming into the year that Auburn would be vying for the best spot in the, AC, in the, in the Southeastern Conference. And especially we didn't think that it would happen with Keenan, uh, Keegan Thompson missing some time or Mize missing some time. They haven't even always been at full strength, Teddy, but uh, why don't you and, and Mike uh, uh, you know, elaborate for our readers and our listeners, how the hell did Auburn get to be our highest-ranked SEC team? <laughs> ah, how on earth did this happen in Butch Thompson's second season, really one-and-a-half seasons on the Plains? It really is remarkable. I mean, you look at it this weekend, they, uh, they beat Arkansas in a series. And like you said, you know, they're missing Casey Mize. They did have Keegan Thompson back. They've had him back for a couple of weeks. But, you know, this week Mize sat out with, you know, I, it's not being, I guess Butch said it's not a specific injury. It's just kind of some general wear and tear and they're being cautious. Um, and, but, you know, their offense just rolled this weekend. They, they really outslugged Arkansas, which has been pitching pretty well, but it was a little thin on the mound as well, frankly, just like Auburn. But, um, you know, the Tigers are, are able to go out there and outslug them. And, you know, you look at the team and it's not, you know, their offense is not particularly stacked with, uh, you know, elite prospect types. Uh, but they just go out and they win baseball games. You know, they they beat Florida, they beat South Carolina, they beat Arkansas all at home, and they just play really well there. And they're playing pretty well overall. Every time you know they get a test put in front of them, it seems like you know they really they go out and they pass it. They've um, they're sitting at 12 and six in the league, and you know they're a game off Mississippi State for first place overall. Uh, you know, and the Bulldogs they they get they get them this weekend over in Starkville. But I mean, if you look at the top four teams in the SEC, it's not just Auburn that's a you know a surprise. You got Mississippi State leading the league. You got Arkansas, Auburn, and Kentucky all the game back. And uh, you know, Mississippi State made the NCAA tournament last year, won this league a year ago, but then they lost ten guys to Pro Ball. They have an entirely new coaching staff. So, you know, I, we coming into this year, we thought they would be a good team, but you know, I certainly didn't have them in first place in the league. And, you know, these other three teams, they all missed the NCAA tournament. Arkansas and Auburn were the last two teams in the conference a year ago. And now, you know, all three of them are, you know, they're in the mix for uh, for hosting spots, you know, potentially for national seeds, especially uh, when you talk about Kentucky with its RPI of five. Um, but it's uh, it's been a little it's been a little strange in the in the SEC. But credit to Auburn, uh, you know, for going out, continually winning these series, and that gets them up to fifth in the poll, which is their highest ranking since 2003. Yeah, I think that's when Josh Donaldson was there. So that's a long time ago. <laughs> So um, a long time ago. It might even predate Josh Donaldson being there. The thing that kills me about this, Mike, is that 
Kentucky, first-year head coach at Nick Bengioni. First-year head coach at Mississippi State in Andy Cannizzaro. Mm-hmm. Second-year head coach in Butch Thompson. I mean, all these guys were SEC assistants, so they knew the league. But they're all at new schools. I mean, like, Bengioni was at Mississippi State, right? I mean, yeah. like, uh, Andy Cannizzaro was at LSU. Butch Thompson has been all over the SEC previously, <laughs> but most recently was at Mississippi State before coming to Auburn. All these guys are taking over teams that are new to them um, you know, don't even have their recruits. You're supposed to have time to you know, get put in your culture, bring in your recruits, bring in your guys. All these guys are kind of like, eh, whatevs, we're going to win anyway. I mean, that, That's the most impressive part to me about all three of these schools that have uh, – yeah, Dave Van Horn is the old school guy who's been in the league for a while. But which of those three teams, Kentucky, uh, Mississippi State, Auburn – has surprised you the most, and which one? I think I know the answer to which one has impressed you the most. Yeah. So which one surprised you the most, though? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, you mentioned the the three coaches, the new coaches. I mean, that just goes to show you. I mean, sometimes you know you have younger coaches, energetic coaches. I mean, sometimes you know a change in energy, a change at the top. You know, maybe that can you know fire up a team a little bit. And you know, obviously, the the talent that they had on their rosters coming in, the talent that they inherited was you know. Yeah, not, not too shabby either. So that's a good point to to reiterate. Yeah, they took over. They did not. None of these guys took over where the cupboard was bare. Yeah, it's not like they were. Any of them were going into terrible situations. They were all pretty good situations. But yeah, as far as which team has surprised me the most, I mean, it's it's been Auburn because, like you said, I mean, there really wasn't a situation where we envisioned that Auburn would be vying for the the top spot in the SEC coming into this year. I mean, yeah, I mean, ten, turnover and correct me yeah. if I'm wrong, guys. Wasn't Auburn just until recently like getting sued by its previous head coach, Sonny Galloway? I mean, that was an ugly yeah ending. Yeah. So I think the lawsuit is actually still pending. Still pending. All yeah. right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, you know, looking at the team this year. You know, certainly to me, looking at the roster and what they were bringing in, it looked more like a transitional year for them, kind of building the program back up. And certainly it's not that they aren't talented. It just seemed like they were building something versus being here and, and, right. and performing at the level they're performing at now. And I know Teddy was mentioning they outslugged Arkansas. Looking at the numbers, the way that they've been swinging the bats lately, it's, it's pretty incredible. In their first 34 games of the year, they hit 10 home runs as a team. In the last eight games, they've hit 11. Wow. So that says a lot about how they're swinging the bats right now. And they, they crushed Blaine Knight, a guy who's been really, really good for Arkansas this year uh, in that Friday game. So that, that really stood out to me. You know, Auburn continues to surprise me. And, I mean, their resume is their resume. You look at what they've done through SEC play, they've been, they've been great. So, you know, certainly from that standpoint – you know, they deserve to be number five just with the way that they've played this year, especially in conference play. But the team that's impressed me the most, the team that I like the most, and the team that I was pushing to, to rank a little bit higher on the call but did not win uh, <laughs> last night is Kentucky. Uh, you, you look at what they did this past week, and, you know, really, you know, I would say they had the, the toughest week in terms of just the opponents they were facing because right. you play a midweek game against number two Louisville, and then you have the weekend series against LSU. You know that's that's a, a tough tough slate there, and they went three and one uh, against those teams. They snapped a six game losing streak against Louisville, and then they took two or three against LSU. And not only took it, I mean they blew them out right. twice <laughs> right. in, in that series. So they continue to impress me. I mean, really since you know a season opening sweep against North Carolina, which 
you know, is, is looking better and better as North Carolina continues to play well. And really, I mean, it's not like UNC blew out Kentucky in any of those games. Two of those games were one-run games. But you look at what Kentucky has done since then, and it's, it's really been nearly flawless, except for a series loss at Mississippi State. Again, they weren't swept. It's just a series loss. I mean, they've been, they've been rolling, you know, and they have the, the second best record in the SEC, their first place in the SEC East, and it's, it's legitimate. I mean, they were a team that we had talked about, you know, as kind of, you know, maybe not a number 25 team, but a number, you know, 26, number 27, number 28, and kind of in that range, right. potentially as a team that had potential but obviously questions with a new coach taking over and, and all of that. But they've been great under Mingione. Uh, they're a talented team. They can hit. They've got some pitching. I really like them. And, you know, they're obviously they're, they're going to South Carolina this weekend against a team that just can't really close out games right now. It's South Carolina has been close, but they just, for whatever reason, they just haven't been able to finish off these series. I was going to ask you guys, I mean, like, which team are you most worried about in the SEC? I mean, South Carolina hasn't won a series, it feels like, in <laughs> – they haven't gotten on a on a, a winning streak in a while. Um, they're still twenty third in the RPI. Yeah. It feels like you know South Carolina, Vanderbilt, Ole Miss, all three of these teams that are five hundred in the league. Ole Miss has the lowest current RPI, but I mean it still feels like it's a you know all three of those teams feel like they have a shot to be regional teams. They're one hot streak away maybe from being regional hosts. I don't know, though, Teddy, for me, like South Carolina, they still have to go on the road to LSU, Missouri. They're home against Kentucky this weekend, and they, they finish up with Georgia. feels like South Carolina really, uh, I, I guess, instead of even looking at the schedule, South Carolina just has to worry about playing better before they can really think about anything else. I mean, which of those teams, I guess, would you be most worried about between those 9-9 nine and nine teams, Ole Miss, South CAC, and, uh, and Ole Miss, I mean, uh, Vanderbilt? Yeah, I mean, the the one that I'd be most concerned about is Mississippi. You know, they're sitting with an RPI 40. That's the worst of any of these teams. Uh, you know, South Carolina's at 23, Vanderbilt's at 21. That's still very comfortable. Um, you know, obviously, top 20 RPIs, top 25 RPIs don't get you into the tournament on your own, on their own. Just ask UNC. Um, but they're a very strong starting point if you can just finish close to 500 in the league. Um, Whereas Ole Miss is sitting at 40, which is kind of at the edge of what is okay for an SEC team, and they still have trips to Arkansas, to Florida, and to Auburn, and the Ouch. home series is against A&M. So Ole Miss has a very tough slate here uh, for a young team as they try and, and figure out a way to, to finish strong in the final month. They're going to have to do it on the road. And, you know, that's just not an easy position to be in. So they would be the one that I'd be most concerned about now. Uh, obviously, South Carolina has trended in the wrong direction over the last month, um, but they were starting from a much stronger point than Ole Miss was. You know, so they still have a bit of this cushion um, that, that Ole Miss kind of is lacking right now. Um, and you just saw Texas A&M a little bit this weekend. Again, a team that's kind of trending back in the right direction, uh, a team that's uh, gotten back in the rankings. Uh, last week was 23rd. This week moved up to number 19. You know, 10 and 8 in the league. They have a series win against uh, LSU. They have a series win against Auburn. Um, feels like A&M is also trending, I guess, in the right direction. Teddy, what did you see this weekend that impressed you out of the Aggies? Well, 
they just pitched really, really well all weekend, all week long, really. Um, you know, that's kind of what this team is doing. And, um, you know, that's getting back to what we thought they were going to do coming into the year. Um, they lost a lot of players off of last year's team offensively. And, you know, they started off the year actually swinging the bats pretty well. Uh, and, and their pitching was a little bit, um, you know, lagging. But they've gotten that fixed. Uh, Brigham Hill on Friday nights continues to be very difficult to beat. And they've moved Corbin Martin uh, from the bullpen to the rotation. And that's really helped them out with Hill and Martin going 1-2. And then Stephen Kolek uh, as their number three starter. You know, they're, uh, they're very difficult to beat in weekend series. And Mitchell Kilkenny has left the rotation for the closing spot, and he's handled that really well. He has like six saves, and he's been closing for like three or four weeks as all. So they've, uh, you know, they've got this pitching straight out. Their offense is sputtering a little bit. They only scored uh, 10 runs this week in four games. And part of that is that Tennessee can pitch as well but they do kind of need the offense to, to step up a little bit more and support this pitching staff. But I, I think ultimately A&M is going to be a pitching and defense team. That's kind of what they're designed to be, and they're, they're really hitting their stride on the mound now. I mean, would they lose two All-Americans last year out of their lineup with Boomer White and Ryan Burke? Uh, they lost a lot of veteran guys off of that Not roster. Mention, uh, Banks. You know, Nick yeah. Banks. Right, Nick the, Banks. He was a two-time veteran. Right, even like off the bench, like they didn't even play Ronnie Gideon consistently last year, and then Ronnie Gideon showed up in the Pioneer League. I had to tell our guys on the pro side, hey, you know, like our writers are just who don't cover college baseball. Hey, Ronnie Gideon is was not a part, was not a full-time player in college. You know, he's <laughs> he's got a lot of power, but don't get don't go crazy on him in the Pioneer League. You know, I mean, they they have a lot of pieces to replace in the lineup. So I guess it's that's probably why I would imagine that's why their preseason schedule, their non-conference schedule, was a bit on the soft side. Uh, the Bowling Greens, the UT Rio Grande Valleys, Brown, those kind of teams being on their schedule. Um, that's why their RPI is in pretty bad shape, and it seems like that that kind of bit them a little bit in opening weekend against Kentucky. Um, I don't know if Rob Childress talked that about about that at all, but it feels like the more they play in the league, the better they're playing. Yeah, I mean, they started off 0-5 in the SEC. They, they lost, they got swept by Kentucky at home, and then they lost the first two games of their series at Vanderbilt. Since then, they're, uh, you know, they've really turned around. They're 10-3 and in the league, and, you know, they've got some nice series wins. They went on the road and won at LSU. I mean, I, I think the team has, you know, kind of grown up here. They've made some important adjustments, like I mentioned, and, you know, their closing schedule is manageable. They go to Missouri this weekend. They go to Ole Miss and they get Mississippi State and Arkansas at home, and uh, you know they play really well uh, there at Olsen Field, and you know they're going to be difficult to deal with down the stretch for uh, for these SEC West teams. All right, well, I know we've talked a lot about the Southeastern Conference. I feel like the other league that is most compelling at the top is still the Big Twelve. I mean, we've talked about that a decent amount this year. Um, we moved TCU back up our rankings to number four this week, basically kind of reflecting the fact that Clemson lost the series. Last weekend, they just lost it after we went out Monday. I guess I should touch on that Clemson lost to Florida State in that series. I did want to touch on the Florida State-Miami controversy a bit. A, because rivalries are fun. B, because those two schools really do not like each other, and it's like a cantankerous rivalry in a lot of sports, but especially feels like obviously football is a bigger rivalry because they've had national implications in football. 
But to my knowledge, I don't think Florida State and Miami ever played for a national championship in football. They did in baseball when they were not both ACC members in 1999. Miami won its third championship, I believe it was. Yeah, I think that was their third title. Florida State, that's the closest Florida State ever has come to winning a championship in baseball. So that, you know, they used to play six times a year. That, that is a heated rivalry. And both teams really needed a win. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Teddy, but basically there was a lightning delay. And in a lightning delay, Miami's uh, grounds crew is not allowed to go put the tarp, to pull the tarp. No one's allowed on the field because of the lightning. So while they weren't pulling tarp, there was a deluge and the game got banged at that point. And neither team seemed happy about it, but Florida State especially did not seem happy about it. I gotta imagine that it feels like that that rule about the lightning and all that kind of stuff is in place in a lot of places, but it feels like the ACC does not have a uniform rule for how to treat postponements. We've had Boston College with two Sunday doubleheaders this year, like this weekend. You have you know, just the way the doubleheaders are scheduled in the ACC all seems like it lands on the the host team. The league doesn't get very involved in it. I don't know if you see that changing based on what happened this weekend because it seemed like Florida State and Miami were not in agreement on how that was settled. Well, you know, Tim Morris also was was not happy with this. I, I want to make clear that Miami wanted to play this game as much as Florida State. They probably wanted to play this game even more because they really needed it. They're still under 500. They need as many wins as they can possibly obtain, and the only way to get those wins is to play them. And Florida State has a nice RP. Well, they need any wins because they're under 500. But yeah. getting quality wins, they need to help their RPI too. And in Florida State, if they could have, uh, you know, Florida State was winning in the third inning when it was called. But, um, you know, if they could have come back and done that, that would have been very, very significant for the Canes. And Jim Morris, um, you know, after the game, I guess he said, um, once the lightning alarm goes off, you're not allowed to be on the field. The umpires are in charge. We had our players in rubber cleats, the non-starters, all day today to go out and cover the field. He wouldn't let them go out. Then he stopped Florida State from going out, too. We couldn't put the tarp out. Right. And as far as I know, there's no universal rule about this. I could be wrong on that. But I've seen this happen before. Uh, you know, it happened when I was at uh, South Carolina last year, and they were playing Florida. And, uh, you know, their Sunday game got, got canceled because they weren't able to get a tarp on the field fast enough. And I think it probably happens even more often than we realize. It's just that, you know, it doesn't end up costing games. I think you're right. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's unfortunate um, that, you know, this happens. Um, you know, it, it, obviously this is all a liability issue. And, uh, you know, maybe the ACC could, could give more direction uh, or, or, you know, maybe even the NCAA. I, I don't know. But, um it, it's really unfortunate in this case because these are two teams that maybe could find a spot on their schedule to make this up. Um, you know, I, I haven't looked to see if they have mutual open dates, but it's not like they're that far away. Um, you know, so it, it's unfortunate, um, but I also don't think, you know, ne- neither team is happy about this. Right. And, you know, there's nothing, nothing nefarious going on here on either side. Right. I think, you know, uh... What the league could do is say, hey, uh, <laughs> come to Louisville a day early and play before the conference tournament. Because that's, you know, yeah. that week of May, well, nobody's in class. But 
you would definitely impair those two teams' chances of winning the league tournament by making them play an extra game. I mean, let's not forget that this is the league that wouldn't let Miami take a home series or take a series that was going to be snowed out and was snowed out. They they weren't allowed to move it to Miami because um, you know they didn't want to have the appearance of of you know them buying a home series a couple of years ago or whatever it was. Right. I, I, the the ACC is uh, I I don't see them doing anything to to help out in, in this situation, but. Um, you know, it, it just is unfortunate that series ends on Yeah, I know I've done this in past podcasts long ago, but it really is. I, I'm quoting Al Gore, but there is no controlling legal authority. It's <laughs> the parody that people used to say about <laughs> Al Gore. But the ACC has really no controlling legal authority that gives a darn about baseball. That's that's really where this comes from. And uh, this, uh, you know, I just I don't think you'd ever see it handled so haphazardly in the SEC, I do think it would happen in the Pac-12 if they had weather issues, but they, most of their league is in California and Arizona. So like, dude, what are you talking about? I mean, like, there's no, we don't have rain here. You know, like Kyle Glazer, our resident Southern California uh, native who comes to the office today complaining about, what's the deal with the weather in the state? Why does it change so quickly? It's like, because it's not California. So, um, but Virginia is the linchpin for both these both Miami and Florida State have to play the Cavaliers the next couple weeks. And I just was looking up some notes on Florida on Virginia, I should say. Virginia is ridiculous offensively. Yeah. This team's hitting 313 in the league in 21 games. How about they have 92 strikeouts as a team in 21 games? They're averaging like it's a strikeout rate as a team of like 8%. Paven Smith has 10 strikeouts, 10 home runs, 6 strikeouts. Adam Hazley has 12 home runs, 15 strikeouts. Rami Komen has more home runs and strikeouts. Ernie Clement has, like, no walks, no strikeouts, and he's hitting, like, a soft 330. But the point is, this team is such an anomaly, Mike, offensively. Yeah. They don't strike out. And in college baseball, where other teams play crap defense at times, they are going to keep putting pressure on you and pressuring you. I know Virginia's pitching is not vintage Virginia. Um, I really think that team is extremely dangerous. I would not want to fail. I, I don't think they're great. But I think they're really great at this one thing, and that is going to be hard for some teams to handle. Yeah, I mean, I think you can make the case that offensively, I mean, they're certainly one of, if not the best offensive club in the Brian O'Connor era. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think they yeah. are. The 2015 I, team was awfully good. Yeah, the Virginias for sluggers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> 2014, I guess it was a 14 team yeah. that didn't win it was actually the better offensive team. Yeah, but the, the 2015 team that did win it, the guys that are on the team now were freshmen that right. year. And we, we saw the you know what that experience has done for them. I mean, you, you look up and down that lineup. I mean, it's it's scary. The, really, what jumps out to me, and I, we've talked about him a lot of late, but Adam Hazley, just the progression that he's made this year, and I know talking to Coach O'Connor before the season began, he was talking about how the, the the ball was coming off his bat a little bit with a little bit more authority in the fall, and he thought he was going to hit more home runs this year. I don't think he would have predicted yeah. 12 at, at this point, the team lead over Paven Smith at this point. But I respect he, his authority. There's yeah, no question. Yeah, no, he, uh, you know, the thing, the thing with him is, you know, 
I, I was wondering where they were going to make up some of the power that they lost from losing Matt Dice. Right. And here you have Adam, Adam Hazley all of a sudden uh, as a slugger in the middle of the order, hitting 12 home runs and, you know, still pitching great on the weekends as well. So, and I like, you know, I know the pitching situation, especially early in, in the year, did not look very promising for Virginia, but I think they've figured it out. I think they've, they've found a good formula on the right. weekends now with uh, Derek Casey and Noah Murdoch. I've been really impressed with the way Noah Murdoch has kind of grown up pretty quickly in these last couple of starts for Virginia. Um, you know, another scoreless outing this weekend against yeah. Notre Dame. So I think that's been a, a really big change for them, you know, being able to figure out that weekend rotation. And, you know, they, they do have some experience in the back end of that that bullpen with Alec Benninger, who's having a really nice year. He's been up and down in his career, but he has the stuff to be a, a decent bullpen option. And then Tommy Doyle with 11 saves this year, uh, he's done a nice job for them. You know, 23 strikeouts to four walks out of the bullpen. So I got a I got a sideways on this ACC thing, but I'm I'm obviously obsessed with Virginia's lack of strikeouts. I yeah wrote about it a little bit. I'm a, I'm a little obsessed with it, and just they are a common opponent for Virginia and for, for Florida State and Miami going forward. So uh, that's gonna be an interesting one. Teddy, I did want to get back. I mean, I know you're uh, seeing some American conference this week, or you've already seen some this weekend, and you're gonna see some Big Twelve uh, action in your your Texas trip. Let's let's steer in that direction. First off, the the American. American conferences, uh, you know, we don't have. Uh, last year, we, we made fun of how how much uh, our colleague Vince uh, Vince Lara loved the American conference. The last two years, really, this is a pretty messed up league. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think we really know what's going on in this league, do we? I mean, do we do we have any idea predicting this league? And when's the last? I can't remember seeing a team do what Tulane has done. From being the bottom of the barrel at the start of the year, Utah. Another, yeah, well, that's true. Utah did do this last year to an extent, but wasn't a first-year coach. Another first-year coach, another first-year SEC assistant, and Travis Jewett uh, going to Tulane. And Teddy just, how did he turn around Tulane so fast? This team is still under five. They're the only under five hundred team in the league, but eight and four. They lead the league. What would you see out of the uh, Green Wave this weekend? Yeah, I mean, Tulane started the year uh, three and twelve, and I think a lot of people uh, were looking around like, "What is going on?" And you know, Tulane won the the conference a year ago, the regular season, um, and then they brought a large portion of that team back. And obviously, David Pierce left to to take the Texas job, but most of those players were back. Uh, Rogers and Alamis, two very high draft picks, were gone, but. Uh, a significant portion was back, and, and they started so poorly. But they've turned it completely around, and they're uh, they're sitting at 20 and 21 now. They're eight and four in the league. Houston became the first team to beat them in a series in the league. Um, you know, and, and it was a very tight series. Uh, you know, Tulane won on Friday night. Uh, Houston had to come back on Saturday to win it, and then they kind of uh, blew them out on, on Sunday. Tulane's pitching depth is not the greatest. Uh, but it's a really powerful offense. They score a lot of runs, and really that's, that's been the key, is that they've gotten the pitching going a little bit, you know, just enough to, to give these hitters a chance. And, you know, they go through the lineup, and it's, it's a really deep lineup. And, you know, they've, uh, they've really just stuck with the, the whole program. Um, you know, Coach Stewart told me that they're, uh, they're, embra- they're embracing the, the word stick-to-itiveness um, you know, that they just really, that, you know, they're not giving up. They're persevering through through the slow start. And, you know, they've really got a role in here. And, 
if they do get to regionals, um, you know, they're sitting on an RPI of 81. Uh, but, you know, if they keep winning games, the, they could maybe get there, or maybe if they win the conference tournament. If, if they get into the postseason, I don't think teams are going to be thrilled to see Tulane show up, uh, you know, in their regional. I mean, I think J.P. France has played for, like, three head coaches there. He's been around a while in their weekend rotation. Um, well, I mean, any of the seniors, I think, have are on their third head coach because David Pierce was only there for two years. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, some, there's some veteran names there, names that even I recognize, even old man John recognizes on Tulane. <laughs> um, but so they, they haven't had the easiest road to contending. Neither has Houston. I, mean, I think all of us guys would have imagined that if Seth Romero, if you took him out of the equation for Houston, I know that happened last year. I know he was suspended <laughs> last year. But as well as he was pitching, he was pitching as well and throwing as well. And any, every draft call I made the first couple months of the year was when we talk about college pitchers, it's like, hey, don't forget Seth Romero. He's really dealing. Um, Houston wins that series, like you talked about. Houston moves up in our rankings to number 20. Um I mean, Houston feel like they should be the favorite in this league. Do you guys both think they are? I mean, Teddy, you saw him, but Mike, obviously, I want you guys to. I don't know if it, well, we're not going to embrace debate here, but do you guys both think that, that Houston's the team to beat going forward in the league? I mean, I think at this point, with uh, you know, they're sitting in first place at eight and four, but there are five teams within a game of each other. Um, it's kind of anyone's league a little bit, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I think you look at Houston and you look at the amount of talent they have there. It's a strong rotation, even without Romero. Um, you know, Trey Cumby, John Kane, uh, you know, they're, they've been very good for them this year. And, uh, you know, they have some, they have offensive pieces. Connor Wan had three home runs on Sunday. Uh, you know, Corey Jolks, Jake Shiner, uh, Joe Davis is a little banged up, but if they can get him healthy, I mean, it's a, it's a strong overall team. Um, you know, that has good experience, and I think they should be the favorite. But I also wouldn't be stunned if, you know, Tulane or, or South Florida or Central Florida or even UConn, which has as good starting pitching as anyone in the league, if one of them is able to, to finish strong here. It's going to be close. There are only four conference series left. It, it, it's going to be close. I mean, Mike, now I'm going to sound like Vince, but all these teams are pretty good. I mean, really, yeah. all these teams, like Central Florida and South Florida both have a case for being ranked. I mean, they don't. I, I, I think it's better that we don't have them ranked. I mean, like South Florida's schedule's been pretty soft, but yet they beat Central Florida when they played head-to-head. Yeah. Uh, UConn was ranked at one point. They've kind of backslid a little bit since then. Uh, but I think we like their, their rotation, like Teddy was saying. I feel like they're four or five. This feels like it should be a four or five bid league. I don't think it's going to necessarily be, but four bids? That's not out of the, the realm of possibility, is it? I mean, looking at the RPIs right now, I mean, you have three in the 20s, Houston at 24, South Florida at 20, UCF at 25, and then you have UConn that's kind of, you know, at 43, you know, has a chance if, if they continue to play well and they finish well. And then obviously, you know, Tulane kind of has the, the outside chance. They're at 81 right now in RPI, but if right. they win the league or if they continue on, the, on this trend, I don't know if they have – I mean, they are playing – they're playing LSU this week. They're playing. They still have series against UCF. Another series against Houston. So they do have some opportunities to build up their RPI. We'll see how much they actually can do it. But yeah, for me, I mean, it's a really. It's I, I tweeted about it with a, a, a Sesame Street gif of just looking, <laughs> looking really confused. Um, I don't know what to make of the American right now. I really don't because obviously in the preseason we liked ECU as the favorite and they've been the worst team 
in the American in terms of record, although they've been very, they've been very banged up, um, which has certainly been a part of it. They have Evan Krasinski back now, and he pitched really, really well this weekend, and they finally won a series and finally won some games in American play this weekend. But That's good. They have an uphill climb six games back. But, yeah, it's very, very, very tightly bunched at this point. You know, I do think outside of ECU to start the year, Houston was my other team that I really liked in the conference. They were my Omaha sleeper, yours as well, John. Yes, so, yes. Um, well, that was mostly based off Seth Romero. Yeah, <laughs> so. well, I still think even without Seth Romero, as Teddy said, I do like their rotation. I mean, obviously, you know, I don't think that they, they don't have they don't have anyone with quite the stuff that he has, but they still have college performers and guys who have who have done well for them. So that, that lineup that Teddy described, that's a good lineup. That's a good yeah. college lineup. That's a physical, yeah. experienced college lineup that has some power. That didn't have to wait for the last eight games to hit some home runs. That yeah. uh, who were you describing earlier? Auburn. Auburn. Yeah. I mean, like this it, is it's it's a legit. They're they're probably the most, in my opinion, probably the most talented team of, of these teams that we're talking about, just from a pure talent standpoint. And you guys will do another sixty four team projection coming up because you know why not? Uh, we'll give you guys more work to do. Um, <laughs> And the, and the last weeks we had four American conference teams in. Um, I did want to touch a little bit out west, guys, if you don't mind. Um, zigzagging a bit. I, I know I'm skipping right over the Big Twelve, but we should wrap up. But there were more. Was, there was a little bit more interesting, more news, I guess. I thought out west. Uh, Teddy, you moved Long Beach State into your eight for Omaha uh, this week. Uh, feels like Long Beach State deserves that. Um, uh, you know, Fullerton loses a series to Cal Poly. Long Beach State beats Irvine. Long Beach State is really outside of that one just like what the what weekend against Arizona State. Feels like Long Beach State has been so consistent this year. Uh, this is not a star-laden yeah, Long Beach State team like some of the ones of old, but maybe that's for the better because it feels like Tory Buckley just has a very complete ball club out there. Um, you know, if you have them as an eight for Omaha, are they going to be a, a top eight national seed? Is that in the cards for Long Beach State? Well, you know, I moved them back. I uh, if you go back and look at my initial eight for Omaha that that I did, uh, you know, after immediately following last season, they're in there. And okay. uh, you know, I backed off that a little bit in the preseason. We installed Fullerton as the the Big West favorite. I felt pretty good about that with the with their pitching staff, but. You know, they're a little banged up, and Beach is playing incredibly well right now. Um, now, can Beach be a, a national seed? I don't know. The RPI is at 18, and they don't have a ton of opportunities to, you know, really improve that. It's still three games at Fullerton, which will help, uh, but Fullerton and Beach are the only two teams in the Big West in the top 100. So, Which is really amazing. Tough. I mean, it's just amazing it that that league's... And, and, Cal Poly, you know, just beat Fullerton this weekend, uh, you know, but they're still sitting at like 129. Um, so it's going to be a little harder for Beach to, to get that RPI just a little bit higher. But if they are, they could be. I mean, if they go out and they win the Big West, uh, they have a lot of road wins, which the committee likes, and they still have a series of Minnesota, which is another uh, chance to, to improve the RPI and pick up some more road wins. That's obviously not going to be an easy trip for the dirtbags. Um, you know, but they're, they're a comfortable host, I think, at Blair Field, which is, uh, you know, gone, undergone some, some nice renovations recently, and they don't lose there. Um, and uh, it, maybe, they can, uh, maybe they can be a national seed, but, you know, I, I think they're, they're just in good shape, and it's a good, experienced lineup to go with a strong pitching staff. And, uh, you know, that really tends to play well in the, in the NCAA tournament. 
I'm just stunned that they've played. You know, I, I'm going to guess there's not a lot of other teams that are in this mix to be a regional host, at the very least, that have played 21 road games. And they still have two road series left, like you said, Minnesota, and technically they're on the road at Fullerton, I suppose. Um, but this is, you know, it just it blows my mind there are only two teams from this league that are um, that are in the uh, top 100 RPI-wise. Not just top 50, but top 100. And they've got... They, they do. I, I, I guess I, I'm selling them short. You guys correct me if I'm wrong. It feels like I'm selling them a little bit short on star power. I mean, David Benuelos is going to be a pretty good draft pick behind the plate. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if he'll go out higher than a Connor Wong, for example, or a Whitley, I believe, is the catcher's name, and Oral Roberts. Blank on his name. They're, they're not a whole Probably. lot of really high picks this year in the college draft class, but there are a lot of guys who could go third or fourth round. But like McCoggin, Darren McCoggin was on the U- Team USA last year. He's pretty consistent. He's had uh, back-to-back complete games. I was about to say he's yeah. like uh, he's going. He's kicking it old school with the three it, CGs. Yeah. So they do have uh, Dave Smith's been outstanding. They do have some star power in terms of their college. And to me, Benuelos and McCoggin, those are kind of college stars. But it feels like Fullerton has a little bit more shiny names and more star names. Long Beach State just has been more consistent, and it's yeah they haven't been to Omaha since 1998. Uh, it's the last time the beach. And they never went with Tulowitzki, never went with Longoria, Bobby Crosby. All these stars they produced to the big leagues. David Espinoza, um, or I suppose Danny. I think Danny's the one who's in the big leagues. I get them mixed up. Uh, forgive me, I'm, I'm old and addled. I get my Espinoza switch-hitting middle infielder mixed up. Um, but they haven't been in a long time. Um, so it'll be neat uh, if the beach can be, get back to Omaha because, uh, because it has been a while. Um, who are the other West hosts? Outside of Oregon State, which is dominating the big the uh, the Pac-12, did the Pac did the West take a hit in terms of host this weekend because Arizona got swept? Arizona is number two in the RPI among all these West Coast teams. I have to imagine Fullerton's a, a hosting consideration again, but outside of Fullerton, Long Beach State, and Oregon State guys, I gotta feel like Arizona took a hit as a regional host this weekend, getting swept, um, and they're now 500 in the league. The Wildcats are still in better shape than uh, the Titans, I would say. Okay. The Titans dropped all the way to 32. Arizona's yeah. still sitting on a top eight, or uh, you know, they're, they're number eight in RPI. Um, you know, so that's that's still probably going to get it done. They need to improve on that nine and nine record in the Pac-12, I would think. Uh, but their RPI still gives them a, a, a chance to to make up that ground. See what I was Stanford, setting up for. Here's what I was setting up for, though, is that next weekend they're at Stanford. That feels like that could be a regional. That feels like that could be a regional hosting showdown uh, between Arizona and Stanford. Stanford. Swe- it could be. I mean, Stanford swept Oregon this weekend. Oregon had been really pitching pretty well and playing well. Uh, I'm not sure that it came out of nowhere for Stanford, but all year we kind of talked about how Stanford's played a tough schedule, good losses. They didn't have great wins. Uh, now I guess. If you're comparing them to Arizona, if they win this series, if they could if they could win this series, they also won a head to head. Hey, they both got swept by Oregon State. No big deal there. Yeah, they've uh, Stanford won this series against Utah. It feels like Stanford's starting to hit a little bit, uh, Mike. And I mean, geez, I, you know, I guess Stanford will go as far as Colton Hawk's arm will take them <laughs> because they do seem to rely very heavily on Colton Hawk out of their bullpen, and they will use him as often as they can possibly use him, it seems. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think this is the kind of performance that we were waiting for from Stanford. Right. And one of the reasons that we dropped them out 
the week before is just they hadn't really looking at their schedule they hadn't really had that marquee series win and they just been kind of inconsistent this year for the most part we I know we kind of compared them a little bit to South Carolina what South Carolina has done this year in the yeah. SEC whereas you know they, they have the talent but it, you're just waiting for the results and I think this weekend was a really nice showing for them to go to Oregon and sweep the Ducks there, a team that's been playing very well and, like you said, been pitching very, very well. To, to be able to do that, just to beat David Peterson alone is, right. is an achievement. So um, that, that was certainly impressive, and, you know, we'll see, you know, if they can carry that against Arizona. They do obviously have the benefit of playing at home um, where they're 14-7 and seven this year. So we'll see. You know, uh, you know Arizona, it was kind of interesting to see their offense sputtering a little bit this weekend playing at home against Utah. You know, they, they were coming into it. I believe they were the number one ranked offense. They're certainly right. in, in the top three coming in, and they, they just really couldn't put runs on the board this weekend, at least not to the level that they had been. And uh, I know we were talking about it last night. I mean, they, they aren't a, a pitching first team. They're an right. offense first kind of team, so they need to score in order to get it done. So it, it'll be interesting to see. I, I think you're right that, you know, it could be a, a regional showdown. I mean, Arizona start off the year so hot, you know, I think they're kind of trending down a little bit of late, but we'll see. This is a chance for them to, to right the ship, and it's a chance for Stanford to, to keep going in the direction that they're going in. Well, I think at the start of the year, if you told me, hey, Stanford's going to have this kind of year, they're going to be in position to host a regional, I would have said, oh, well, that makes sense. They've got Tristan Beck, yeah. and they have kind of the senior Brett Hanowich back in the rotation, had a great fall, these great reports about Brett Hanowich. And Colton Hawk at the back of the bullpen. And Hawk has held up his end. And to their credit, he threw two and two-thirds on Friday. Didn't pitch the rest of the weekend. Because some scouts have been complaining to me about how heavily he's been used. Um, but Beck hasn't pitched all year. Hanowich hasn't been a factor. Doesn't throw enough strikes. Hasn't been a factor. Um, they're basically doing this with Chris Castellanos has been outstanding for them. And pretty consistent. Uh, Chris Bubich is not really like a classic Friday guy, but he's he's been competitive for them on weekends. And their bullpen the, in front of Hawk, Matheson, and Thorne, those guys were outstanding this weekend. And, and yeah, this is really more of a – they're kind of like Arizona. They're an offense first team, even though they don't have the gaudy numbers. You know, in my mind, uh, Quinn Brody's – I don't know if I'd call him a breakout guy out west this year, but he's – he was a area code guy, area code games guy, and a, a big deal at high school. He's kind of put some things together this year. Mikey DeKroger, like they, you, you know, the DeKrogers are to Stanford baseball what the Plumleys were to Duke basketball. There's this the third DeKroger. There've been a lot of DeKrogers. They basically had a DeKroger every year since 2010, I believe it was. I think it was the oldest DeKroger was a 2009 draft. Yeah. So 2010 freshman year. That's seven straight years of DeKrogers. I, um, I prefer to Harris Teeter to, yeah. to, to Kroger, but it is, that's, it is, that's just me. It is ripe with uh, with uh, grocery store puns that are there to be made and leave it to Mike to make them. <laughs> um, but now they're starting to get Daniel Bax into the mix offensively. Nico Horner, their shortstops, did a nice job. You know, Tommy Edmond was kind of a stalwart for them for three years in their uh, lineup. Sometimes it's a, it's a hard position to replace. Horner has replaced it. So... Um, I, I think this is going to be a very interesting matchup in those two teams because they are, I think, both offensively oriented. And whichever team, you know, it feels like uh, Arizona tries to find those two or three guys they can ride on a weekend, and they're looking for starting pitchers to take them deep into games. 
Stanford's looking for five innings and they want to go to the bullpen. And uh, that it's an interesting contrast. And I'm really looking forward to that series um, in the Pac-12. And I, I do think it's going to be, and the winner of that series is much better positioned to be a regional host. Uh, I'm curious what you guys think of UCLA and Cal. There's Cal's second in the league and UCLA's third, but their RPIs are both kind of iffy. I mean, Cal, basically, Teddy, you and I talked about this last week. They're one and nine against the top 50 on midweeks. Cal just gets hammered <laughs> with some regularity. I mean, they're just, you know, it feels like this is just not a team that is very deep on the mound. But considering how high our expectations were for Cal last year and how spectacularly they fell short of them, uh, they swept USC this weekend. Uh, you know, they've won some series. They swept Arizona State before that and Wazoo. You know, are either of these teams regional threats? I mean, Cal's got to go on the road to, to UW and Oregon State back-to-back. It feels like if Cal's going to be a regional team, they it would behoove them to go 3-3 three and three in these next two weeks. That, that means winning a series on the road against one of those two uh, nor, you know, Pac-10 North uh, old-school teams. I, I don't think that's very likely. You, which, which of these teams, Cal or UCLA, do you think has a shot to maybe make a run this uh, and be a regional team toward the end of the year? So I will definitely take UCLA. I am impressed by what Cal has done. It's an incredibly young team that Dave Esker has there this year uh, because, again, they were expected to be much better than they were last year. They got really banged up, and uh, they couldn't overcome some of those injuries, and, and then they lost a lot of their older players, and they're playing a ton of freshmen. Uh, but it goes beyond just UW and Oregon State, those two road trips. Then they have Stanford at home, TCU at home, and they finish at Arizona. So if they win these games, they're going to get in the tournament, and they're going to get in with a really nice RPI. But that is, I think, the toughest five weeks you'll see left on anyone's schedule. Yeah. Even if you shorten it to four weeks, because most teams you know, will finish with their conference tournament, like that's still, that is a very, very tough slate. Uh, so UCLA, having already played Oregon State and taking their requisite two losses, <laughs> Uh, it's sitting in conference play, uh, you know, in, in a much better position. They've got Cal Poly this weekend, uh, and then they go back into conference play to finish at UC, USC, at Wazoo, home to Utah, at Oregon. Uh, so it's a lot on the road, but it's more manageable. It's um, doable. It's, it's, it's not it's easy, but RPI. it's doable. Yeah, it's a little less RPI favorable, but they're already up to 57 they can just push it up a little bit further and maintain a second or third place in the in the Pac-12. You know, they might be in, in good enough shape. They're sitting at 500 overall, though. So they, they do need to get wins, and they need some decent wins. But I, I think they're in better shape than, than Cal is. I think you're right. Here's what impressed me the most about UCLA. They're both very young teams. UCLA's offense really trending in the right direction. If you just look at what they've done in the conference, they're hitting 289. 380, 416 in the league. They're nearly, it's nearly an 800 OPS in league play yeah. for UCLA, whereas overall for the season, their offensive numbers look pretty pedestrian. Um, but in the conference, <clears throat> I thought they're playing totally different guys. Uh, Michael Taglia, you know, very toolsy, athletic, young outfielder, really starting to come on. Ryan Creedler, who they really believe in, really coming on. Chase Stumpf, you know, a guy who they thought would come right in and, and be a factor offensively. Um, has, has been more of that in the conference than he was uh, before the in the non-conference. The other X factor to me is, I mean, I know Fridays are supposed to be tough in the Pac-12, but Griffin Canning hasn't been great 
in league play. He's got a race close to four in league play. He's better than that. So I have to think that UCLA, uh, I think UCLA is going to be kind of, it's not quite the same. They kind of remind me of West Coast Virginia that they're getting better as the year goes on. They're going to be, they're going to probably be a three seed somewhere like at Fullerton or at Long Beach. That's going to be tough for, for those big West teams, Mike, to have UCLA, if they can make it into regionals as a three seed, Yeah, uh, they're going to be lurking down there because if, especially if they can win one of the games, like with Cieja, who's been outstanding on the, as their Saturday guy, yeah, they could start him in the two-three game, maybe win that game, and then you got to face Griffin Canning, yeah, on Saturday in that regional. Good luck with all that. <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to do that. That's they're going to be tough if they can get in. Yeah, well, I mean, UCLA has been kind of a bubble team for us the, the last couple of weeks in the field of sixty-four. I mean, it's a team that we're keeping an eye on because they've been trending up. Of late, obviously they're they're still just five hundred right now. They need to win more games, but and Utah's in the same boat. I mean, Utah's yeah. five hundred and has a higher RPI. Yeah, and they go to UCLA later. That could be that could like be a another... region, like winner, you know, a Thunderdome. Two teams enter, one team leaves. That's an old Mad Max <laughs> reference. You guys probably don't get that reference. I do not, but Utah <laughs> uh, certainly had an impressive weekend uh, th- this past weekend, sweeping Arizona for the second straight year, but. You know, going back to UCLA, yeah, I mean, I've been impressed with Michael Taglia. You me- you mentioned how he's he's been heating up, and he, he is, looks the he part. Is a guy. Yeah, he's a guy that they had high ex- expectations for, and he got off to a slow start, but he's been hitting really well in conference play lately. Has been really important for them offensively, and uh, you know, the thing with them, you know, comparing them to another team, I know you're comparing them a little bit to Virginia. Kind of reminds me of the trajectory they're on is kind of Tulane ish hmm. in yeah. that starting off non conference play, eight and ten in non conference play, and now they're kind of heating up a little bit. Obviously, Tulane's in, in better shape just because they're tied for first right now in the American. And, you know, I, I, I can't see UCLA catching Oregon State or right. anyone really catching Oregon State at this point. But at the same time, I was impressed with the way that they played Oregon State this weekend. I mean, they could have won that series. Right. You know, the the no, Friday the Friday game, they forced extras um, with, with that two-run shot there yeah. in, in the ninth inning. Hudson Balinski with a nice uh, little yeah. report on that one. If you didn't see it at BaseballAmerica.com, uh, Hudson was out there. I wrote about Luke Heimlich and Griffin Canning mm-hmm. matching up in a, what sounded like a kind of a classic yeah. Pac-12 Friday night pitcher matchup. Yeah, and you know Canning's been pitching really well of late too. I mean that's his, his really his second straight the outing. Before that, it was a, a shutout with twelve strikeouts, and that was his third twelve strikeout performance of the year. So he's heating up and pitching well for them right now, and he is a dangerous weapon for them. And you know they almost won on on Sunday too. They they were leading one nothing going into the eighth inning before right. Oregon State you know was able to score those two runs. Oregon State's just had that magic this year. They've just been able to to find offense when they need it late in games. But now I'll say the scouts yeah. I've talked to doing West draft coverage, everyone's so impressed with uh, with Oregon State. I mean I consistently get no nah, they don't really have any holes. I, mean, I get really that good. consistently. Like if Nick Madrigal, you know Nick Madrigal's not a big physical guy. There are times where he might make a throw that's not a great throw. They'll just switch him and Caden Grenier. And who has Caden Grenier just like hanging out at second base so you can just move him to shortstop and play him? I mean, the depth and athleticism of Oregon State's roster is different, it sounds like, than their competitors. They're they're really good. They're they're a really special team. I I came away very impressed when I saw them. And And they did play Grenier and Madrigal interchangeably. Yeah. And now they have Rasmussen back or right. he, he's he, he didn't pitch this weekend, but I know he, he warmed up. Yes. Um in the, in the, the pen. So, you know, you get him back, 
you know, whether they they start him or just throw him in relief, that it's still a weapon. I mean, he could be a, a power arm in the back end of a bullpen for you, and you know that only makes you stronger. It's kind of like a late season trade, what they just did. They just picked up yeah. an ace, uh, at yeah. the very least, a factor. Yeah. And maybe they could use him as a closer. Oh well, they probably don't because Mulholland's been awesome back there. Maybe they could use him on Fridays. Oh no, Heimlich's been great there. Uh, <laughs> maybe even Saturdays though. Jake Thompson's really really good. They really you know they don't need him. But now they have him, and yeah. like when I was watching Saturday, oh, here's Grant Gambrell, uh, first-team high school American last year, who's you know been very effective in middle relief for them. So they have talent in the freshman class. They have talent, a lot of talent in the sophomore class. They got talent in the junior class. They're so good. They really don't have a <laughs> they're hole. Just really they're good. number one. It's like an easy number one. There's like them. Yeah. And like Louisville's the closest. Right, but I mean, I think there's a decent gap after those two teams. No offense to North Carolina, who's sitting three. Yeah. Or TCU at four, but for me, guys, it feels like Oregon State's on its own level. Louisville's maybe a little closer, maybe to Oregon State than it is to three. But I, I don't even know if I believe that. You know, I, yeah. I mean, like I don't know, Teddy, if that makes sense as a question. I'm giving Mike a, a moment to ponder. But I mean, like well, I'm putting you on the spot. People, ask, like, people ask me all the time, you know, who's the best team that you've seen, and I have not seen Oregon State yet. Um, but I've seen those other three teams that we're talking about there, UNC, Louisville, and TCU. And generally, I say Louisville and TCU, and then I often throw North Carolina into the mix. And uh, I see it as a top four, a strong, strong top four. Um, you know, there's a difference between Oregon State and those other teams, certainly. Uh, but when you factor in, you know, the experience that TCU has, uh, they're much older than these other teams we're talking about. Um, you know, I, I think that definitely plays. And, you know, when you look at, at Louisville with, with Brendan McKay and, you know, just how good he is and how impactful he is on, on both sides of the ball, uh, you know, he's probably the best player on any of these teams, you know, offense to Nick Madrigal. Um, I think so it's still I, him, you know, as I, much I, as I love Madrigal. Madrigal would have to go, like, throw 60 innings, too, to... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe right. not that many because his defense is so good at short and second. But, yeah, I get, I, I get your point. Yeah, so I, I think those four teams are all all right there, um, you know, with with each other. With you know, Oregon State is a is a clear cut one, but I, I don't see a, a, a massive gap between the, any of the teams in the top four. I'll just throw in one more thing as we were on the Pac-12 to wrap up. Just keep an eye on Utah because yeah. Utah does have they still have that rotation, which uh, Lapiana and Rose back from last year. I, I love uh, Jason Rose. I want to make sure I get my roses, keep my roses in the front there, big guy, to use a Bull Durhamism. Now Raleigh Otteson's on the weekend now. I mean, uh, he's I think he's a little overheated as a draft prospect. He was throwing 96, 97 last year. I see some bloggers who've written about him. Oh, my God, Utah has this big power arm. Yeah, they had him last year. I'm pretty sure he was eligible last year as a freshman coming off his LDS mission. Uh, this is a, you know, they, they have some offensive firepower too. They could probably use someone to go with, Kiersey and Dallas Carroll, who, be a little more consistent for them offensively, but I think we found out last year Utah's pretty pretty uh, gritty, uh, gritty. I wouldn't even say gritty and gutty both. Wow, the double G. I did. Uh, I you went double that G'd way. It. Yeah. I did, so. Well, the thing about Utah too is looking at their schedule down the stretch. I mean, sweeping Arizona. This was this was huge for them RPI wise. Obviously, yes. bumped them up twenty two points to thirty five, and really the rest of the way. I mean. Playing Washington State's their next series. That's a series that they should win. UC Riverside, another series they should win. 
Southern California might be a little more challenging, but again, you think series they should win. Series they should win. Toughest series, and then they also have Arizona State finishing the year. Again, a series they should win, given yes. how Arizona State has played this year. Their toughest series is UCLA, which, as we said, could be you know kind of it certainly would have some postseason implications to it more than likely. But other than that, it's very manageable for for the the Utes at this point and. I feel good about their chances, especially where their RPI is right now. You know, doing what they did this weekend really put them in a good position going forward. Yeah, I'm a little bit worried about Oregon. You know, they have to you know, shake that off. They still have to play Oregon State, which I guess you know, they're the, probably the one team that's not going to say we're going to we're going to lose that series. But we're going to maybe try to take one game. I mean, you know, the Civil War is kind of a big deal. Yeah. Between those well, teams, that's an RPI benefit to to playing it though. Yeah, they exactly. On that field and, and it helps. But they don't want to. They don't want to say that. So. Uh, you know, Teddy, they, you... they can't. They, they can't talk about that. But like the reality is, is that their RPI is going to benefit no matter what they do. And they get midweeks against Oregon State too. I think they have five games. With Oregon State left. Teddy, you guys will have to write about the Big Ten because I didn't ask you about the Big Ten. But we did bring Maryland in. We still have Michigan ranked. We could go on, but we probably shouldn't. It's been a long podcast. That's what happens when I get involved. I did make it through the whole thing. You did. I'm excited did. about that. It's been a long time. Since <laughs> I'm excited about that. I ate lunch before this podcast. That's a big reason why. I'm excited about eating lunch after this podcast because so. the one Pop-Tart isn't going to hold me over for the entire <laughs> no. day, as good as it was. Teddy, have some Texas. I, I will say Texas A&M Corpus Christi coach Scott Malone tweeted earlier that his lunch, uh, he tweeted a picture of it. It was, it was a Pop-Tart, uh, brown sugar Pop-Tart. Mike, I don't know where you rank those uh, in, a, in a Mountain Dew. So you're a good company uh, with, uh, with Scott Malone uh, Brown brown sugar is when I'm feeling a little classier. When I want to, you know, class up my breakfast, I'll go with brown sugar. But otherwise, I like to go with a little more, a little more sugary stuff. Um, than brown sugar, more yeah. sugary than brown sugar. Yes. How yes. come they taste so good? Like a chocolate fudge or a, a the red velvet has been a go-to of late. This morning I had a vanilla latte and it was wonderful. Uh, I hope they don't discontinue that brand. They are discontinuing apparently the orange crush pop tart which is good because that thing is terrible. It is bad. I tried it just to say I tried it, but I'll tell you what, it was not good. So that's my... I'll tell you what is good. Louisville Slugger and uh, their power in numbers and their sponsorship of our college baseball coverage and this podcast. Before it goes any further off the rails... I'm sorry, Mike. I'm not. It's, it's okay. it, 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 usually I'm the one who does that. So I appreciate that someone else has that power. So... Uh, Teddy, eat some brisket for me in Texas, please. Uh, small bits of it if you if you must, but some brisket for me would be appreciated. <laughs> so for Teddy in Texas, follow him at uh, Ted Cahill on Twitter. Is it at Ted or Teddy? At Ted. It's at Ted Cahill. Uh, I like the Ted Talks, which I believe starts now uh, as we get done with this, that you'll be chatting. And he's at, uh, what is your at, Mike? At Emlanana. It is just Emlanana. It's simple. Plain, well, it's not simple because Emlanana is really tricky to spell, but you'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> for, for these guys I'm John Manuel we'll see you on the next Baseball America podcast so long everybody